here up the front. So I just thought I'd give you a little, um, a little thought for Advent. There was a guy, uh, he lived very early on in the church. He knew a guy called Polycarp. And this guy called Polycarp knew the Apostle John. So I'm talking about Irenaeus. You may have heard of him. But he took the words that John, the Apostle, wrote at the beginning of John, where John talks about how the light came into the world. He describes that light as the embodiment of, or as Jesus Christ being the embodiment, I should say, of that light. And just as we, we sang that last song, or as we sang these songs together, I sensed the spirit in what Yanis and the band prepared for us, a, a spirit of hope, hoping. That's, what's, that's the, the, um, the sentiment behind calling out to Jesus, come, thou font, thou, um, the, the source of every blessing, of all good things for us. Anyway, Irenaeus pictures as Jesus Christ is born in that holy night on Christmas, on that first Christmas so many years ago, it's like, um, it's like he pictures the light coming into the world and suddenly we've been in darkness and Janus knows about a, a bit of darkness. He said he's going through a stressful daily life at the moment. We all know that in our, in our lives. Difficult situations. But it's in response to these difficult situations that, that Christ does come, that we do have, that Advent, the hope of Advent, the longing of Advent, uh, births into the reality of Christmas. And anyway, Irenaeus pictures this as light bursting into the world. Sort of like if you put, um, if you take a glass of clear water and you put a bit of food coloring in it, you see with it how the color just begins to spread out through all the water. Or maybe you've spent, maybe you've done a movie marathon one time and you've spent like three hours in a cinema watching, I don't know, The Lord of the Rings. They go, they go for three hours. And then you come out of the cinema and then suddenly you come out into the afternoon sunshine. It's just this burst of bright light and you're like, whoa, where have I been? This is how Irenaeus pictures the coming of Christ. And this is what we're looking forward to with Advent, that the light from God, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, came into the world. And right at the moment of his birth, we don't even have to wait till Good Friday and Easter, but right from the moment of his birth, that signals that God is now going to be restoring his world, restoring his creation, and hearing his people as they cry out to him in hope. So that's a little thought for you to look here at this little light here and remember Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Why don't we take a moment now to greet each other and then we'll jump into the sermon for this evening. I don't know if you've done that here at Church at Five before. You can just go up to someone and say hello. First time tonight, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, I'm here for the I don't know, fourth time tonight. You'll know if you've been here before um, that at Church at Five we're going through Paul's letter to the Galatians. So this is an early Christian letter that was written maybe around 48 AD. So I don't know if, you, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're just exploring what Christians believe. Very early on, the churches in Galatia, so that's an area in modern-day Turkey around the southern coast of Turkey, they realized that the, that the letters that Paul had written were, um, have, had value not, not only for them and their situation in the first century, but also for the wider Christian family. And so they became known, they became circulated in the, the Mediterranean world, the area around um, the Mediterranean Sea in the, in the Roman Empire at the time, and so they became a foundational Christian text, which is why we uh, find um, this letter in our New Testament um, today. And so we as Christians believe that this text, while it is the words of Paul, that Paul um, wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, and Brandon's been going a bit into his personality in the last few weeks, showing how much... Um, passion he had when he wrote this letter so they are the words of Paul 
But we also believe that behind Paul is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, guiding Paul in what he wrote, so that this is a sacred text, and it's from God. And so, just as it spoke to the churches back to almost 2,000 years ago, it speaks to us with the same authority, with the same um, freshness, uh, and with the same relevance today. So, that's a little bit of introduction there to Galatians. Yeah, so we're in um, Galatians chapter 3 this evening. Let's just remind ourselves about Galatia. I mentioned it before. It's a, it's a province, so this is not like other letters in the New Testament that are maybe addressed to one particular church, like the Corinthians or the Thessalonians at Corinth or Thessalonica. This is addressed to a group of churches that Paul has founded on his first missionary journey. So just after, they're not very old, um, they're maybe a year, a year and a half, maybe at the maximum two to three years old before Paul writes this um, letter. And... Um, We've seen that Paul has a, a true, has a true pastor's heart. A pastor, pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd. So just like a shepherd looks after his sheep, Paul feels like he has to look after these Christians, that he's their pastor. He's taught them about what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, to live a Christian life. And now he's concerned that they're going into error, that they're forgetting what he told them. And they're actually going down... Um, another track and that's what motivates him to write the letter and that's this motivation is seen all throughout the letter through every section that he writes and that's where Paul is um, this evening in chapter 3 he's pointing out the implications to the Galatians so these people in Galatia they would have been men women children Romans Greeks slaves Jewish believers as well people with a Jewish background a whole uh, motley crew as you say of different people in these churches, he's pointing out the implications um, of what it means if they keep going down this way, if they keep forgetting what Paul's told them, what the gospel is, the announcement that Jesus Christ is the true king of the world because God has raised him from the dead and through Jesus Christ he's now promising new life to all who put faith in this Jesus Christ. He's warning them, if you forget what I said and if you start going down this other way, what will happen? And that's what we want to look at um, tonight. And Paul's doing this, and as he's explaining the implications here, he's also um, unfolding to the Galatians in a rather more systematic way a doctrine that we call as Christians the doctrine of justification, which we've been talking about here at Church at Five for the last two weeks. So, the two Sundays before this, you can hear those messages. They're on the website at calvarychapel.com, calvarychapel, sorry, ccfreiburg.de. I said a German word. <laughs> Just kidding. We'll stay with English now. You can get them on our website and, and listen to them. Um, justification. So just in a nutshell before we keep going, this is what um, the doctrine, doctrine again, just a Latin word that means teaching. So this is the teaching that Christians hold, the teaching that the Christian church um, teaches to its disciples, to people who want to become Christians and join it. On justification, again, another Latin word that just means how I appear in right standing before God. If you remember back where we've begun now uh, the celebration or the, rem- the memorial of 500 years since the Protestant Reformation in 1517. Everyone knows 1517? That's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And you can remember it. Because every time you see a German beer bottle, you'll see that the 
purity law was in 1516. So it's like pure beer, then pure theology. That's how it goes. One year later. 1517. And you remember that Luther's burning question at the time was, how do I, a sinner... So Luther knew that in his life he'd done things that were wrong. He knew he'd stuffed things up. He'd made mistakes. How can I stand in the presence of a holy God or a righteous God? How can I have a relationship with this God? That was his burning question. And we, the, the, the way we can do that is what the doctrine of justification is trying to teach us. How do we stand before God? How can we, as sinners, all that means is that we have missed the goal of this life for which our Creator God has chosen us and decided to go our own way and do things that are wrong against our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters in families or our parents or colleagues or people at school, you know, if you're honest with yourself, that that describes you. How can I, as a sinner, stand in the presence of a holy God? So that's the, that was Luther's burning question. And I just want to encourage you, that should be a question. In fact, I would say it needs to be a question that you at least ask yourself once if you want to be a Christian. If you haven't ever asked yourself that question, and, I, and don't get caught up on the wording, how can I assume it? But the concept of understanding that you are not perfect, that you have made mistakes and done things that are objectively wrong, objectively wrong, for which you, are, you owe a debt towards God and you may even owe a debt towards other people, you need to ponder how do I stand before God in this situation and realize that you can't and then cast yourself on Jesus Christ as your saviour. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to be your saviour. You needed to be saved from something. And if you've never understood that, then it's doubtful you've understood what Christian faith is really about. So again, I'm not saying that to um, scare you or... Uh, but I think we can be, it can be a healthy thing at times to be challenged. Have I really understood what Christianity is about or what it means to become a Christian? If you've got a question about that, then you can definitely come up and speak to me or Brandon at the end or Yanis or Angus. Anyone I can see here in the, in the couple of front rows would be happy to talk to you about that. So that's where, that's where we are um, tonight, talking about this. Let's, let's read um, the text in a moment. So we want, to, we want to look tonight a little bit about at personal implications of this doctrine of justification, how it relates to our lives, and, and then just talk a little bit about what justification means and how that affects the law of Moses, the law of Moses. So before we, before we get into that, um, yeah, let's, let's read the text. So if you've got a Bible with you, we're in um, Galatians chapter 3. And now, the text for tonight is actually verses 10 through 22, but I'm going to start reading from verse 6. So, why don't you open up, and I'll read these verses now. Here we go. Well, you'll, you'll catch up in a minute. Here we go. This is verse 6 of Galatians 3. So, also, so we're kind of joining Paul here in the middle of an argument. Also, Abraham believed God... It was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. 
So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So we'll stop there for a moment. So Paul again here, and we'll read the, the rest of the text just in just a few moments' time. Paul again here uses some strong language. He's talking here about being cursed. And if you remember, um, back in the early part of the letter in chapter 1, because he's so agitated for how these churches are going and how these Christians are going, he says, if anyone comes to you, if I come to you, Paul, or anyone else, even an angel or another apostle, and I preach another gospel than the one I've already told you, then let that person be anathema. That means condemned. Paul is so serious here about the purity of the gospel, understanding, crucially understanding what the gospel is, that he says, if anyone teaches you anything else than what I've already told you, then that person should be accursed because they're leading you down the wrong path, down a path that leads to death. So now in the middle of this argument, we, we, last week with Brandon we saw, um, we read through verses 6 to 9 together and Brandon spoke about those. But I just want to um, pick up the argument here because Paul is now saying, he's now trying to show the Galatians the two options that they have. The one option being to come back, as it were, to Paul's message, to Paul's gospel, that is, understanding the, the reality according to Paul of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for the world and living on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross, that Jesus Christ is the true King of the world. And the other option that he's saying, that he's presenting here as another option, an option that the Galatians are pursuing, is what happens when, instead of doing that, you say, I need to have Christ plus something else. In this case, the law of Moses. You remember, again, I I mentioned that, just to make it clear that Brandon's been mentioning this all through the series, that there was a group of people in the churches in Galatia at this time The New Testament, Paul refers to them as Judaizers. So that is, they're arguing that in order to be a true disciple, that's a follower of Christ, so a true Christian, you need not only to believe in Jesus Christ, that He was was crucified on the cross and that He was raised to new life and therefore, because God raised raised Him from from the dead, He is the true King. He is the true Lord. He has conquered death and sin. Not only do you need to do that, but you also have to keep the law that Moses, that God gave to Moses for Old Testament Israel. That's why they're called Judaizers, because in a sense they're asking uh, people who are not Jewish by background to bring themselves under the Jewish law. And so Paul's using an argument here to show the Galatians, if you do that, if you believe them, then this is what that means. 
And it's not pretty. He's saying you're actually risking a curse on you. A curse on you. Let's start then here in verse 10, where he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So he's saying, if you want to go down this way and you say, okay, I'm going to need the works of the law, those refer initially to things like keeping the Sabbath, that's the the holy day in old Israel where you were allowed to do no work, but was holy to the Lord. The other nations didn't have these laws. So if you do things like that, or if you keep the the dietary requirements of eating only um, clean, food that is classed as clean in the Old Testament law, or if your men are circumcised, those are, the, those are the three clear outward signs of this Old Testament law, but of course there are many more laws that go along with it. If you rely on that, then Paul is saying you, you're actually putting yourself under a curse. Now, by saying that, he's not saying that there's some kind of magic thing, that as soon as you sign up, this kind of um, um, yeah, um, mystical witchcraft-like curse comes upon you. That's not what he's meaning at all. What he's meaning is that you're putting yourself in a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. Paul knows the history of Israel. He knows that, and he'll come to talk about this in just a few verses' time, that the law was of no, um, it had no power in itself to make Israel holy or to rescue Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, you very quickly appreciate that. A lot of people have no idea what's in the Old Testament, thinking, oh, it must be a bunch of really nice stories. It's, it's not at all. Or, or, they must think, or they might think it's, it's really a, an account of how, um, how Israel is so good and so powerful. It's not at all. It's basically a catalogue of failure because the law is unable to give true life to Israel. And we just see again and again a catalogue of how Israel fails to live up to the law. They fail to keep the law, even though at Sinai, that's the mountain, when Moses came down with the tablets of the law, they freely took on themselves the, um, the desire to keep this law, to live, to have this law as what would govern their relationship with God. It was a free choice. They said, we will fulfill this law, and from then on we get a catalogue of how they don't live up to it. So Paul's saying, look, if you want to go this way, if you think that these are necessary, then you're putting yourself in a hopeless situation. And that's akin to having to being in a cursed situation. And he even shows you here by quoting from the law. He quotes here from Deuteronomy and says, where Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the law, the law is divided into five books, the so-called five books of Moses, where the quote here is, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So he's quoting from a text, um, you know, around 1,500 years old at his time, that was given to Israel as just before they went into the promised land, where at that time God had laid the law upon his people and they had freely accepted it, where God had said for Israel, if you don't keep this law, you will be accursed. So Paul's warning the Galatians saying, you, you've got to know what you're getting yourselves into here if you want to put these conditions on yourself. If you don't do everything that's written in the law, then you will be accursed. And he continues here in verse 11, clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. So he's saying, based on that, nobody 
Nobody can keep all the works of the law. I, I know, says Paul. I, I used to be a Pharisee. I'm well trained in the history of my people. And he says in, in, another, t- in another passage in Philippians, I count all of that now as, a, as, as loss. Far better is it to know Christ. No one who relies on the law is justified before God. He continues the argument here by giving one of his favorite quotes, a quote from a little book of the Bible called Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. Because, he says in Habakkuk, it says, the righteous will live by faith. And we have to understand here in English, do we have the text here? Oh, that is Habakkuk. Amazing. Um, if we just come back, though, to Galatians uh, 3.11, and we'll see here that, yeah, there we go. It says, clearly no one is justified before God because the righteous. We have to understand in Greek, the word behind justified and the word behind righteous are like the same kind of word. So he's saying, he could, we could translate this verse and say instead, clearly no one who relies on the law is righteous before God because the righteous will live by not the works of the law but by faith confirming the argument he's just given which we heard last week about Abraham and he continues on the law is not based on faith on the contrary he says and he quotes again from Leviticus the third book of the law the person who does these things i.e. all these things written down in the law of Moses will live by them Not the person who has faith, but the person who does them will live. The argument obviously being, if you don't do them, you won't live. It's the person who does the law who lives. So Paul is pointing out, clearly to the Galatians, watch out what you get yourselves into if you want to take on the works of the law, in addition to Christ. He'll go on to say at the beginning of chapter 5, let me just quote it to you here, Galatians chapter 5, he says, again in in, in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, so it's one of those works of the law that I mentioned, the Sabbath, the circumcision, and the dietary requirements, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So he's saying, once you, you can't just take on a little bit, you've got to take on the whole thing and then you're in trouble, you're in a place of despair. And we're back in verse 13 here, let's continue through. Christ, says Paul, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he's saying, um, he's now talking about him himself as an example of Jewish Christians, so people of a Jewish background who now believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's what he means by us. Okay, so he's saying to you, 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 you different Galatians out there, you Greeks, Romans, Lydians, um, Parthians, Medes, all these kind of guys out there who've now come to faith in Christ. And now think, oh, I now, I've come to faith in Christ, but now I maybe need these works of the law as well. I need to complete the law as well. He's saying, just so you know, let me tell you about my point of view, my history as a Jewish believer, as a believer in, in Jesus as the Messiah from, with a Jewish background. Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law. We were under this curse. We've been under this curse for centuries. Christ redeemed us from that. You don't want to get, you don't want to bring yourselves back under that curse, into that situation. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed everyone is everyone who is hung on a tree. Again, a quote from, uh, from the Old Testament there. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul here is just um, is tapping, here in, tapping into a, a, a truth that, that he describes in, other, in, another, in, another, um, in another part of his writings in these terms where he says, um, salvation, how does he say it? Let me think of the quote. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, is his quote. So he's saying, God needed to rescue first the people Israel who were under the curse of the law, and through doing that, he would then extend that blessing to the Gentiles, that is to all the peoples of the world, all of the nations of the world who are not Jewish, not of the ancient Israelite nation. So, so this is Paul's argument. He's redeemed us from this. You don't want to go back under this uh, situation. Let me continue quickly through the next section and then I just want to spend a bit of time talking about what this means for us. The law and the promise. I'll read it from verse 15 now through to 22. Brothers and sisters, he says, let me take another example from everyday life. So everyone should understand this. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, or we might say contract, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Which promises? The promises that God gave to Abraham, that he would bless Abraham and that through Abraham all nations of the world would be blessed. That's in Genesis 3. Scripture doesn't say enter seeds, meaning many people, but enter your seed, singular, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I'm trying to say is this, the law of Moses, introduced 430 years later, so he's, he's hearkening back to Israelite history here, Abraham was given this promise 430 years before the law was given to Moses, the law introduced 430 years later after the promise does not set aside the covenant or the contract previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance, that means what the, what the promise is signifying, depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Let's just stop right there. What he's saying is, if we look to see, if we look again back to our father Abraham, the father of faith, we see that again, Abraham, as we saw last week, was justified by faith, not by works, not by works of the law. And now he's saying, if you look back in history, you'll see that the promise that God gave, that through Abraham all nations of the world would be blessed, that was given before the law was ever given. And that was a, a covenant, that means a an, un, an unbreakable contract between God and Abraham. And the conditions of that covenant had nothing to do with works of the law. In fact, we saw last week that it was Abraham believed he had exercised faith and God credited that to him as 
righteousness. So the fact that, that sometime later the law of Moses comes has no effect. It doesn't set the promise out of... Um, I'm trying to think of how to say it in English. I also cuffed. No? It doesn't, set the, it doesn't um, nullify, we could say. It doesn't nullify the promise that, that God gave to Abraham. And then Paul makes the really key argument in verse 18. If the inheritance, that is, if receiving what God had promised depended on the law, then it would no longer depend on the promise. There'd be a fundamental problem here. Because God had promised these things to Abraham not on the basis of the law, but on the basis, ultimately, of his free grace and of Abraham's faith. That's a point, if you're taking notes, that Paul explores more deeply in Romans chapter 4. And I invite you, you can read that in your own time. So that can't be right, Paul says. It can't be right that in order to receive the, the promise, sorry, the inheritance, which is embodied in Christ. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. It's through Christ that that promise to Abraham, through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. How does that happen? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the inheritance. So Paul's saying this can't be, you can't have Jesus Christ the inheritance as being the, being the inheritance coming through the law. That wasn't what, that wasn't how God dealt in the past. That wasn't how God dealt with Abraham. That wasn't a condition. And then it would, and then it would depend. If it, if the inheritance he argues in verse eighteen depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. In that way, theoretically, it would require that we keep the law in order to earn Christ. Paul is quite clearly arguing here that that's not the way it is. That's ahistorical, it's anachronistic. That's not how history really was. Then Paul um, begins an interesting, he asks a very interesting question. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that is Jesus Christ, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, Paul argues. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This text is a little, a little difficult and we're not going to go into it in full tonight because the time isn't there. But I just want to give you one or two sentences on what Paul, what I believe Paul is trying to say here. Why then was the law given at all? And this, this idea is continued next week as well. So we'll leave that one to Brandon to mull over in his spare time after his Christmas shopping. No, um, it was added because of transgressions. It seems to be the case, and I compare this text with Romans chapter 7. Again, Galatians and Romans have a lot of crossovers. They're both very hard to read in one sense. They're very, very clear to read in, in, in one sense. I'm not denying that. But in another sense, there have been so many books and commentaries and articles written about these two books, and they keep pouring out year by year. So it doesn't look like the... Discussions are going to be over any time soon. But let me just synthesize what I know from Romans 7 to say um, it appears that in a mysterious way um, 
Israel functioned, the law in Israel functioned like a sort of magnet, right? And if we talk about sins or transgressions as iron filings, you know what a magnet does to iron filings? It sucks them all up so that they're all gathered in one place. And it seems to me this is how this is how God glorifies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the one true faithful Israelite. And that he has Israel have this law. No other nation had the law. Only Israel has the law. So Israel heaps up for itself transgressions as it continually fails. It continually fails and it's just producing iron filings after iron filings. Like this, we imagine the map of the Middle East and there's just this huge dark column right over the Holy Land of Israel. And then Jesus comes and he takes that all away. It's almost like Israel is a picture of humanity. That Jesus then comes, so, so Israel's heaped up all of these sins on itself because it had the law and it therefore transgressed and broke the law again and again so that Jesus comes. And it's almost like uh, Israel does this in a representative way for the whole world. That's what I understand this phrase to mean. It was added because of transgressions or for the purpose of transgressions until Jesus Christ, to whom the promise referred, had come. To make it clear, and this is the thought that Paul continues in our next section, which we won't read now, to make it clear that the law was designed to lead us, to guide us to Christ, to make us understand we can't rescue ourselves, we can't save ourselves, we can't make ourselves righteous. We need a saviour. We need that spotless Lamb of God. That's what I believe Paul is saying here about the purpose of the law. So, what do we, if we just want to sum up now what we've seen today, Paul is, um, and what does this have to do with justification and how does this relate to our lives? Let's just talk about that because I, um, I want this, I want the penny to drop for you, for you to, uh, to understand here. Um, how this relates to your life. So Paul is saying here, there's two choices that you have. You can continue on in the gospel that you've heard, the gospel that is in Christ alone, by grace, through faith. Or you can add to that gospel, add works of the law. There are two things that, um, well, there's one thing that Brandon said the other week uh, in talking about Martin Luther. He said of Luther that Martin Luther had felt that he had to teach the doctrine of justification every week because people were so forgetful. And I, I fully agree with that because I see that in my own life. Despite reading these letters and preparing these sermons, I again and again see in my own life the principle that I see at work in the Christians at Galatia. That having received, as Paul uh, argued in the first part of chapter, th- of chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, you've received the Spirit of God. You've seen what God's worked in you, the changes He's worked in you, or the miracles He's worked in you. And now you're exchanging that. You're going back and you're trying to add to that by works of the law. And I do want to make a crossover here and say that we, as a rule, don't try and take on works of the law in a Jewish context. That We don't often go back to the, to the law of Moses. But I know from my own life that we do often fall into the trap or in fact constantly fall into the trap of trying to add to what Christ has done. So instead of resting on the finished work of Christ, we try and add to it. And we do that in 
um, in two ways. One, we try and do things that we feel uh, will impress God or make God owe us one or, um, or think well of us so that we feel like, okay, we've, we've earned something now, I've earned some blessing or I've earned a day off. I, I don't want to... You know what I mean. So the first one is we try and do things, good, good deeds. The whole fact that our culture has a concept of good deeds, the... the um, the typical good deed being to help an old lady across the road, says so much for the fact that the Christian church has failed to understand this doctrine fully through the centuries. Because otherwise we wouldn't have these stereotypes in society because they wouldn't be known. They wouldn't be known from the lives of Christian, of, of Christians. So the one thing that we try and do is we add good deeds, just as the Judaizers were encouraging the Galatians to add the works of the law of Moses... We're encouraged to add good deeds. We think, oh, we better do that. Um, to, yeah, to earn God's favor or to, to, we'll think God thinks better of us or he'll uh, bless us now. Um, yeah. And the other one, I've just completely forgotten. Just completely exited my head right now. So that's what we keep falling into. But the, the realization that I really want you to have and I was saying this in the pre-service uh, meeting, I, th- I remember it happening to me once in my life, just when I was sitting over here, right in this very room, so many years ago, and we were talking about this at a discipleship training school that I was a part of. And the kind of the penny dropped for me when I, f- when I realized, this is a realization that you may have had once, and that, but you need to have again and again, is that your justification, that is your right standing before God, the grounds, for the, the, the grounds for everything that we do here, the fact that you can sing these songs and mean what we, what we sang, that, has, that is completely grounded, grounded, has its foundation in what Jesus Christ has done. And, it has, uh, and you contribute nothing to it. Your good works or your lack of good works or your sin contributes nothing to your standing before God. This is the revolutionary, in one sense, doctrine of Paul's um, teaching on justification. That it's not about what you do or don't do, or how often you do it, or whether, or whatever, that contributes to your standing before God. That, that really is such a, a, it should be a seminal moment in your life to really fully understand that. And we, our brains are so... Uh, slow sometimes because of our sinful human nature at understanding this and we keep, have, we keep inventing ways to do good things to earn God's favor even if we know this truth but Paul is saying it's not by works of the law if you go that way you're actually placing yourself in a despairing position because you can never match up the whole point of the law was to show you you can't match up you need to cry out for God like we do in Advent come thou font of every blessing can't do it ourselves we need you and that means if you if you believe in jesus christ that's a phrase that you hear so often in christian churches if you believe in jesus christ that is if you believe that jesus is who he said he is that he is the son of god true man and true god so able to save us because he is god and also sorry able to save us because he is god and man we're men not god therefore we are missing the power to save us to save ourselves because we all fall short, fall short. 
that he is able and willing to save us as God. That when he died on the cross, the, the just penalty for all of those things that we've done wrong that I mentioned before and that you know what they are, as soon as I say that, you'll have your own personal history that you think about, that all of those things were laid upon him, that he took the just penalty for them, which is death. The wages of sin is death, writes Paul in Romans. We see that very, very early on in the Bible when uh, God speaks to Adam and Eve and says, if you do sin, if you do take and eat of what I told you not to, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe that who he, he is who he says he is, that those sins were laid on him, that he took the penalty in his, uh, in his finished work on the cross, and that he furthermore overcame that by being raised to new life by God the Father, and he then offers you, if you believe that that is true, that it is real, not a mere intellectual assent, I believe, but a trusting, okay, I really trust you for this, Jesus, then you partake of that new life in him. You're part of his new humanity. You're part of that blazing light of the world that comes out in new fullness on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. We sang it before, where is your sting, death? Then Every, then your, your being in Christ has nothing to do with what you've done and everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to, um, to, to give yourself a right standing before Christ, uh, before God. There's nothing you can do to make up for your sins or somehow do good things, help thousands of old ladies cross thousands of roads. To, to earn your way into God's favor. That's what Paul's saying here. The, the, you are justified, that is, you are put in right standing before God simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. Simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. And that, that is just a glorious truth. It really is just trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has already done. That is what uh, we, as the Christian church, teach that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And that might sound like a doctrine to you. It is a doctrine. I just want to finish on one note here. The personal application, the personal implication to your lives might seem questionable. What, 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 what effect will this have on my life? But I really believe that it is uh, revolutional and um, it completely changes your Christian life if you understand this and if you live by it because it, un- because it changes your whole motivation for the Christian life it changes your whole outlook on the Christian life it changes your outlook on prayer it changes your outlook on church it changes your outlook on worship and on ministry you're freed completely freed from the burden of the law, as it were, telling you, you must do your quiet time every morning or God will disapprove of you. You must pray every day or God will disapprove of you. Or you must do this. You must come to church every Sunday for God to accept you. That, that pressure is gone. It's completely gone because it's not down to that. God looks upon you with grace and with favor and with love 
because of what Christ has done, not because of your quiet time, whether it was done or not. And you're therefore freed to, to live a life of joyful service. Joyful service. Who lived a life of joyful service? Jesus Christ. And if you're his disciple, you'll follow him. You'll follow him. You'll live as he did. And that's that joyful service, which is truly, um, not only is it, is it, I believe, infectious, it is actually attractive to people. People are attracted to people who joyfully serve. But it, it is, to um, misuse a quote, it is your best life now. You will experience, in living that way, true joy. True joy. Joy in the midst of suffering, because when we follow Christ, He allows us the privilege of suffering with Him. That is a deep truth, one that more, some people can relate to more than others, but it is a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. But He gives us great joy, and therefore everything we do, every act of service that we do, is not in order to earn our position with God, or to desperately try and get our way into heaven, or to make up for the bad thing we did the other week, but it's rather simply joyful response to knowing Christ, to having faith in Him, to being thankful that He did everything for us. And that we stand on His foundation and not on any of our own works. and Certainly not on any of the works of the law. So I think if you, for each person here, that might mean that you go home and you fill out a little card or you think about it and pray and, and just write down a few things on, on how that might affect your life how that might affect your life, how that might affect the things you're doing now, the ministries you're involved in, or how you feel about yourself when you get up late, as you did every day last week, you didn't pray. The first thing you did when you checked your phone was not to read the verse of the day. And then you feel bad about it. And you're just living with this pressure on you every day. If you understand justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone, it should free you from that. And it should completely change your life such that, yeah, you may wake up late and you may not read the verse of the day every day, but when you do, you read it and you think, this, this verse, I love this verse because it's giving me life and joy today, not because it's something I have to tick off in order to be a good Christian, in order to earn my way. So I hope that you can find a personal, that's an implication and I hope, and as, as your brain hears this implication, and the Holy Spirit, I believe, is at work here tonight, the Holy Spirit will show you where that has an, a very a personal application for you. But I'm talking out of, from personal experience as well here, understanding this, the times when I understand this the best, when it's clearest before me, are the most joyful parts of my life, and they're also the parts where I'm most fruitful um, in ministry as a um, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting here. He's, he's appealing. Let's finish up now and I'll invite the worship team to come back up to sing. He's appealing to me saying, don't go down this road. Don't place yourself. He uses stronger language later in the letter. Don't go back to being slaves. Don't go back to being slaves. Don't go back to having that yoke across your neck every morning when you wake up thinking that you have to do it in your own strength, that you have to earn your righteousness, earn your salvation, earn your right standing before God. Be free. Be free. You have been created to be free in Christ. That's what 
Paul is, from his pastor's heart, pleading with these Galatians to see. Amen.